One Hope Church. Morning. Glad each and every one of you are here today on this Father's Day. So, shout out to all the fathers, and uh, may God help us to be faithful. We know we have one Heavenly Father who's always right, who's always consistent, who is always true, um, always loving, holy, and just. Um, and that's um, you know, what we want to be, even though we know we aren't. Um, and in our human flesh, can't fully be. Uh, but we're thankful we have a God who is um, always loving and true. And you know, but the, for those of us who are earthly fathers, the Scripture says, you know, we do the the best that we can. You know, that's the goal: is to do the best that you can, the most um, effort that you can put forward in being a good father, in relying on the strength of God um, in our lives to a, attempt to do that. Um, but this morning we're going to continue, we're, well we'll talk, bring that back in a little bit this morning, but we are continuing in our study of the book of Matthew, we are in chapter 24, um, you can, I mean, cha- 28 chapters in the book, so you can feel us getting closer um, to the end, and things are really going to, to ramp up here shortly, um, but let's, we're in chapter 24, and we'll begin in verse 32 uh, this morning, and then... Uh, Let's go ahead and pray. We'll read that and get into it. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this day uh, we can come and we can worship you. Uh, Help us to do so in spirit and in truth. Help our hearts to be turned to you, God, and help us to see things as you see them. Lord, it's so easy for us to be influenced um, by our traditions, by our, our culture, Um, by the things going on around us, God, that we can easily and quickly lose sight of what's important to you and how you view everything. And so help us to see as you see. And as we see the words of your son Jesus this morning, help us to understand what's really hard to understand and help us to apply it correctly um, to our lives. We ask for your help in all that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we ask most of all, though, that our, mar- our hearts and our minds would be for you, God, um, and that we would make our decisions, that we would live um, accordingly. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so now just remember the context, um, because, you know, this is, this is a hard, hard part. You know, when, when Jesus, you know, you have a scene that's almost like a continuous scene for multiple chapters, but it's kind of hard in one sitting to really talk about and to go through all of those, you know, chapters, you know, together. It's a lot of, ma- of material, and so, especially when you have a week in between those, it can be pretty easy to lose sight of the context and what, you know, the context that Jesus is saying these words in, and that's really important. We have to remember that he has just had this major confrontation with the Pharisees and religious, you know, leaders um, of the nation. Um, so he's, he's had that, and then he's privately talking with his disciples as they're showing him, you know, hey, you know, they're, they're like, hey, look, uh, amazing how this, you know, temple is. And we know that the temple was, a, you know, was, was tremendous, and, you know, Herod, as a favor to the Jewish people, you know, amplified the, the beauty um, and the, you know, the, I guess you could use the word, the glory of the, of the temple in a certain, I don't know if that's the best word, but... 
to give you a mental image, I mean, it would be spectacular to see. And then Jesus comes back and says, hey, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. You know, all this is going to go away. And he's trying to tell them what's really important. Because we know, as the scripture tells us, that, you know, God cannot be contained to a building made with human hands. He encompasses the entire universe. He can't be contained. And he doesn't need it, a building. He doesn't even need us to worship him. He's God, whether you worship him or not, whether I worship him or not. God is God. He is self-sufficient. That's part of his definition. From eternity past... He's in the loving relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need us. We need him. You know, it might be a news flash. <laughs> you know, you might have been feeling all big and, and bad. But God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. But out of his great love, he desired to create us. He desired to create a people to share you know, his love and his glory with. And we are the benefits of that. But let's not ever mistake who's God in the relationship and who's human. Let's not mistake that. Let's not mistake who's infinite and who's finite. Let's not mistake that. Because we need to not think bigger of ourselves than we actually are. We are as big as God made us to be, which is the biggest, you know, the greatest in all of his creation. That God values you and I more than the stars that he made. More than the expanse of the universe. I used to have the numbers on this. I can't, I'm just pulling this back uh, from a previous time. But, you know, you, the speed of light... I mean, that's, that's fast. That's fast. It's fast. And how many years, you know, the, the known universe, what we kind of have an idea of, how many years to go from one to the other? In all of that expanse and all the billions of stars that are out there, planets and moons and all these other things, and all of the creation just on our planet, God values you and I above all else. He didn't send his son to die for others. He he sent his son to die for the human race. So he has elevated us above all the rest of his creation. But he's never put us above himself. So you you are love. Don't get me wrong. But you need still, and I still need to remember who we are in the grand scheme of things. God is God. And we are not. And so Jesus really wants his disciples to see the big picture and to have an understanding um, that things are, even you know, what they're about to endure and what they're going to endure in their lifetime is tremendous, but there's still going to be more to come. More to come. You know, and I think having that perspective... And having perspective is, is helpful. We all need that because we can become so myopic, you know, so laser-focused on what's happening in our particular life at this particular point in history. And we can think it's the biggest thing ever. It's not. It's not. 
yes, you know, those of us who've had, had children, having children is amazing big, gigantic thing in our individual lives and in our community. It really is awesome and tremendous as a gift given by God. It's the, you know, one of the biggest things that can happen in a person's life, but it's small compared to you know, the whole huge expanse of it. And so we have to have you know, perspective. And I like to, a lot of times we don't like to hear that because you know, our flesh wants to hear and gravitates toward me, myself, and I. And so what's going on in my particular work is bigger and more than everybody else's work. And what's going on in my particular project is bigger and and more important than everybody else's. You know, that's kind of how we can easily default into that position. And, And I would contend it takes work. It's hard. It takes work. It takes discipline to have eyes on Jesus and eyes on the big picture of the world and the big picture of, of time, that's much more difficult than just to be lost in, in just what's going on in your day and in my day. It's hard. It's hard for me. Uh, and, I, and I think I'm probably not too different than the rest of us. So Jesus wants his disciples to get it because they've got to carry his message ultimately you know, to the world. And so he says this to him in verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So that's, that's an important thing there that Jesus says, and, and that can be a, a, a difficult you know, thing to, to grab hold of, and we need to, to try to grab hold of that. But he uses the example of the fig tree, and he says, you know, when you see the new leaves on the fig tree, you know that summer is near. That's a, a sign for you. That's a tell. You know, that's how people in the, you know, would, would know, okay, you know, the winter, the, you know, winter and spring are kind of done summer. Summer is coming. It's close. We've got these new, new leaves. And then um, he tells them, you know, he says the, these words. Um, you know, it can either be this or that, and it's kind of important. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Because there's been some... So I'm taught there, you know, what, um, what does he mean here about that generation? You know, what is he speaking about? Is he talking about, you know, the generation of his disciples that are hearing this? You know, and there are some things, I mean, you have the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and you, you might be, you know, thinking that that could, could all be there, but he already talked about in chapter 21, verse 43, to the religious leaders, much of that, of that nation was already condemned. He said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay, so there's an indication in that transfer, you know, you're going to need time, there's going to be space. I mean, you, gotta, you ultimately, you have to have time, you know, for the church. 
to be established and for the church you know, to grow. So you're not going to have the second coming of Christ until the church has done its part and had its time in history. Okay, so those things are going to be separated. So he's not talking specifically about all of them when he's talking about the second coming of himself, that he's going to be coming, you know, again to set up his, his kingdom. Now, what does it mean when he says, you know, that the, you know, they're, they're, the kingdom of God is going to be given to a nation bearing the fruit of it? We need to not think of, about it like, well, that, that was taken from Israel and given to Italy or Saudi Arabia or to the United States of America. You know, many people have kind of thought that, you know, in this manifest destiny that the United States is, you know, taking the place as God's favored nation above Israel. Well, that's cute, but not so helpful. Um, so I think we could look, think of it a better way when, you know, in this new age of, of the church that's coming, when Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so, his nation doesn't have borders. His nation accepts everyone of every ethnicity and every language. His kingdom is open to all who were entered in through the gate that is Jesus Christ himself. That's something good for our, our world in all times. You know, we, again, you need to think bigger. You've got to think bigger than your own household and your own you know, community, your own city, your own state, your own nation. You know, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, then... That citizenship is bigger and better and more important than any other citizenship. You know, I think about now we've got you know World Cup has started and it's a kind of a it's a time for you know patriotism and it's a time that patriotism kind of can turn into nationalism if people aren't you know too careful. Now in this particular World Cup, because you know our nation didn't make it in this time. Um, has a little. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, this has a little less to you know to, to to celebrate. But you know, people are in this time. You know, they're celebrating. You know, their 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 nation and their you know their place and and all of that. And, and you know, and there's up to a point, up to a line. That's fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and until the point that you don't. You know, you stop loving other people from other places. You know, at that point, then, then we've gone into something that's ugly. Gone something that could be good into something that's ugly. Uh, you know, made a transfer there. But as followers of Jesus, though, I mean, we've got so much more to celebrate than any nation on this earth. You know, we have... Think, man, listen, we have an eternal king. We have an eternal king. You know, like or don't like any president we've ever had, four to eight years. 
like or don't like any dictator that some nation has had, they, they have a time that ends. We have an eternal king. And he is just. He is righteous. He is loving. He is holy. He is good. He always makes the right decision. Big picture perspective, because again, we can get so focused on and, and you know what's happening in any nation at any time is important. Like we need to be aware. I'm not saying don't be aware. I'm not saying don't talk about it. We need to be, you know, involved and we need to have, you know, good morality and, and ethics and a Jesus based viewpoint on everything. But I don't care who the president of is or who the you know, somebody listen to this message in another place and who their dictator is or who their king is or who their queen is or whatever it is that they have. If you're a follower of Jesus, the name of Jesus needs to come off of our lips a hundred or a thousand times for every time the name of any president or person of this nation or any other nation. Because we have an eternal king. And we have perspective, or at least we're supposed to have perspective. The name of Jesus is above all names. He's the one we need to go to. You know, he's the one to go to with our ultimately, the one we go to first and ultimately for everything. He's our king. And then he says this. He says this in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming, but you know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you are to be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that is not expected. Now, okay, Context again is important, and we again, we have to take the whole Bible, you know, as one narrative, one picture from beginning to end, from you know Genesis to Revelation, right? And so, you know, where does this fit in the narrative? Where what part of the time frame is Jesus, you know, talking about here? And it needs to match and and work with you know the the rest of it. You at least hope that it you know, you can, that it does in whatever way you approach it. And again, we've talked about before, we hammered this last week, prophecy is really hard. It is difficult. But in the whole of what's happened here, um, and this is a lot to get into, we can talk about it more maybe in some other context too, we have our study on the book of Revelation and our house fellowships and you know that's all about you know the end times and you know how these things kind of work out and where these things take place and so that's going to be a context where we can get into more you know detail um, about those things but it's 
breaking all this down because Jesus here is focused on his second coming, and this is ultimately when he's going to come, you know, to reign. Um, so for those of us who you know believe that the taking away of the church, the rapture of the church, is going to happen before you know you have a time of tribulation. Those the church isn't here in this scene in chapter twenty four. The church is already gone. This is you know the the rest of the world. But we know that even in the tribulation, many people are going to become followers of Jesus. The gospel is still going to be preached in all the world. It's going to go out, and there are people who are going to um, be waiting, and they're going to be suffering as they wait for the return of the king. Now, so there's a couple things here, because again, context is important, interpretation is important, application is important. You know, in terms of interpretation, you have, we all have to understand, not every verse in the Bible like, is equally able to be interpreted for you or for me. Your place in time and history like determines whether there's an in, that interpretation is directly for you or not directly for you. I, I can make that pretty simple. Just for example, um, Moses before Pharaoh saying, you know, God says, let my people go, and this judgment's going to come upon you if, it, if you don't. Well, it would be kind of foolish to say, well, you know, that was written to me, for me. It's like, well, are you Pharaoh of Egypt, you know, 5,000 years ago? No, you're not Pharaoh of Egypt. That wasn't directly to you. Now, is there potentially an application in the passage that you could pay attention to that could apply to another situation in our time period? Well, possibly so. But the interpretation itself, like you can't say, well, that was written to me, for me. You know, so we have to be careful as we read the Bible and understand the Bible that not every verse is equally like nails you in your situation. So here we're going to say there, it might not be able to be interpreted directly to us because you know we're the church and we're this other entity. But there are going to there is going to be an application, and the application is to live a life in which you're ready for the Lord. That application is still true for you, no matter of any time that you live, because from the first followers of Jesus until today, we all need to be ready for the Lord. We all need to live our life expecting. Okay, if you believe in the rapture, that the rapture is something that's going to happen for the church, you need to be ready for the rapture. If you believe that, well, that's, you know, metaphorical, whatever thing, and it's just going to be the second coming, well, you would need to be ready for the second coming. You're going to be, you need to be ready. The, the application is going to be the same no matter who you are in any context. Be ready. You don't want to be not ready. You want to be ready. And that's not to say that the interpretation isn't important. It really is important. But um, there's still going to be an application for us, even if the interpretation isn't specifically for you. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, talk to me afterwards. We'll try to make more sense of it. Um, but we want to be ready. Now, here's another thing in this passage that's interesting. 
Because in the rapture we view as the church taken away, and that's a good thing. Here in this case, taken away, especially when you read Luke 17, it seems like the ones that are taken away here are taken away for judgment. That's a bad thing. Like the two men in the field, you wouldn't want to be the one that was taken. Uh, you know, somebody would want to be the one that was left. Which kind of goes, you know, there was an old song. That we all, you know, you may have sung if you're, if you're a little bit older. It was kind of in the hippie movement. And um, it, it talked about, you know, you, you know, two men walking the field. One, you know, you've been left behind was kind of the thing. Well, it kind of got it wrong on the which one was good and which one was bad. It kind of have been the left behind as the bad, but in this context, you want to be the you would want to be the one. You you actually wouldn't want to be either. You would already want to have Jesus. But if you were here, you would want to be the one that was left behind and not the one that was taken because it's going to be taken to judgment. Okay. We're getting there, folks. Come on with me now. 45 through 51. So now listen to this. He says, Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master had made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant who his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assure you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant, and that's really important, evil servant, says in his heart, My master is delayed in his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eat and drink with the drunkards, so the master of the servant will come on a day, when he's not looking for him in an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion from the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's intense. That's harsh. But again, we have someone who's in, in disguise. This evil servant is in disguise, just like the religious hypocrites in the days of Jesus were in disguise. They said, hey, I am one thing, but then they acted in a completely different manner. And Jesus, you need to be really clear here, clear here this isn't a good servant who occasionally messes up. This isn't somebody who really is in right relationship with God who falls and makes some mistakes. No, this is an, he says, evil servant. This is a wicked person. Do we, I mean, we have to understand, there are wicked people you know, in our world. There are many wicked people in our world. And Jesus gives his judgment. Now, again, we like the picture that only has, like, really kind, like, healing people, Jesus. Like, just let's just have that. When Jesus says, he's going to come and cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, now, who is he already called hypocrites? The religious leaders. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. Would that unless, and some of them did, we see in the book of Acts, some of them did truly repent and believe and have a true faith and stop playing games. But Jesus told them, the religious leaders of his day, you're headed straight to hell. I mean, that's the summary of it. And can you imagine that? I mean, like, imagine you got like a big religious convention, and Jesus walks in, basically, says, most of you headed straight to hell. And that's what he did. 
when he talked to the religious leaders, you know, the Pharisees, religious leaders of the nation, that's what he did. I mean, you read the whole thing and you see his words to them. He condemns them. Now, with that, there's an opportunity for them, as there always was, even remember the pe- preaching of, of Jonah and Nineveh, there was an opportunity for them to weep over their sin and to beg for forgiveness and to receive it. And that's why Jesus, back in the previous chapter, says he weeps over Jerusalem because they kill the prophets. He weeps for them and that he would desire to gather them in as a mother hen does her chicks, but that they would not. They always resisted. You know, they resisted what was true and what was good and what was right. They resisted the love of God and the holiness of God because they preferred their own positions of excellence. They preferred their own power. They loved money more than they loved God. And they were hypocrites. And so God, in the person of Jesus Christ, made no, he didn't cut any two ways about it. This is the path you're on. He told them that they were on the path of destruction. And it would be pretty, you know, and you say, well, that sounds harsh. You know what would have been more harsh? To not tell them that they were on the path of destruction. To not warn them. To pretend, oh, everything's just fine here. And then for them to reach judgment. And this is what we need to understand. So the wicked, the wicked and religious hypocrites have the same fate. Because their hearts are far from God. The overtly wicked and those who are putting on the disguise and who are pretending, the hearts of both are evil and wicked and will be judged. Now, Okay, what's an application here for us on that? There's a pretty big one. One is, you can't fool God. You can't fool God. He knows our hearts. You can't fool God. He knows our hearts. He sees everything. He knows what's true and what's false. There's no, there's no faking him out. there's an application here for fathers there's an application here for everybody but you know we have to be real in our relationship with God because you know I was thinking about this just in terms of fathers you know there's some there's there's others in your life that you can fool you know you can fool your neighbors and your co-workers Uh, you can fool your community into thinking you know you're this wonderful person you can fool them I generally think you can't fool your kids. They catch on. They catch on because they see the unfiltered you. See, everybody, everybody in the world, you know, they, you know, the, the people at our places of work, our neighbors, you know, volunteer work in the community, whatever it is, you know, people generally see, they, they see the filtered. They see the filtered. They, they, they see the, hey, all right, we're going to put our best forward here. But our kids, they see the unfiltered version, for better or worse. So they hear the, all the words, 
not just the words that we want some people to hear. They feel the attitude, they understand the circumstances. If religious games are being played, they know it. Now, they may play along too. They may learn the game and play it the same way their parents played it. You know, and they may even one day, you know, post on their Facebook when they get older, world's greatest dad, what a man of God. They'll play the game right along. Because they've been taught to play it. But don't actually think they've been fooled. They know the truth. Kids, our kids will always see through it. So then what are we to do as, as dads, those of us who are dads or hope to be one day? We just got to love it. We got to fall in love with Jesus. That's the only hope not to be a hypocrite. That's the only hope to have a household where the kids don't just learn how to play a religious game. That's the only hope of, of raising children that don't, don't learn you know, how to look one way, but then to be another way. But I'd also contend that's not just for dads. That's for all of us. Because it's a community and it's the whole church. So how do we have a church where the children in the church, the next generation, those who come behind us, are what we actually hope that there will be? Well, we've got to be a church that loves Jesus. Because if you've ever been part of a church where people don't actually really love Jesus, the kids don't want anything to do with it once they have the autonomy to not be there anymore. And, you, and we've also learned, hopefully we've learned, I still don't think we've actually, we actually haven't learned it, that you can't entertain kids into loving Jesus. You know, some, some people got this idea a, a good while ago that you know what, if we just like do everything like the world does, but you know, we just change the words a little bit and we'll just, you know, we'll just make it flashy and throw some, we get some more lights and make the music louder and throw in some pizza, that these kids are going to love Jesus, become disciples of Jesus. And so you've got, you know, we, we, we're now like on at least generation two of people whose face are about half an inch thick. And who can't, you know, they've been entertained, but they can't tell you much about why they, what they really believe or why they believe what they believe. So we've entertained, in the church, we've entertained our way to ignorance. We've entertained our way to playing a game where things can look good. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying because I don't have any problem with music style. If you know me, you know that. I don't have a problem with lights and whatever else. But you better have more than that. There has got to be substance that goes far beyond the style. 
And for every ounce of effort put into style, there needs to be a ton put into substance. Because when, these, when those kids, when they go to university and their professor is telling them all the reasons that God doesn't exist, and all they can say, well, is, you know, the music kind of sparked this emotion in me. But they don't have any answer. That's not going to go very far. That's not going to... You know, and, when, and, and when life gets hard... When life gets hard, entertainment isn't going to cut it. There's got to be a real relationship with Jesus that goes beyond just feelings. Because if it's just all about, hey, you know, I love God when I feel good. And I love God when things are easy. And that's all we teach. Well, life isn't that way. Life gets really hard, and sometimes it gets really hard all of a sudden. And you don't all, and you don't just like get prepared to handle that moment like that. No, that takes years of preparation to be ready for. And so we need what what the church today needs more than anything else is reality. To fall in love with Jesus. What do I need more than anything else? Fall in love with Jesus. What do you need more than anything else? Fall in love with Jesus. More and more and more. Because if you're in love with Jesus, and you're going to want to search his word, know more what, it, what he's got to say. You're going to want to live more consistent. More consistent. And again, what we see today, you know, I, I see it all over the church in all sorts of circles where, you know, on ideas and thoughts, like people are basically like ping pong balls just getting, you know, knocked around by prevailing, prevailing thoughts. And, and we have to learn, I'm going to say, I'm going to try to say this the right way, we've got to learn how to think Jesus' thoughts. We have to learn how to think Jesus' thoughts. Because if there's one thing that Jesus is, because, you know, he's God, you know, he's consistent. He's consistent in his ethics. He's consistent in his morality. And it's really hard in our world today to be consistent with Jesus on ethics and morality. To see it as he sees it and to follow him in that. And so what we have is, you know, inconsistency. Now, I guess it's better to be inconsistent than to be consistently wrong, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Correct? Let me put it there. <laughs> Correct? It's, it's better to be, you know, somewhat inconsistent than to be always wrong on issues of ethics and morality. But we as followers of Jesus, you know, we, we have to do the work of not being cluttered and clouded with all the ideas you know, of you know, whatever's popular at the time. If you just go what's popular at the time, you know, at one point you're going to be okay with widows being burned when their husbands died. You can take a look at world history. At one point you're going to be okay with kidnapping and slavery. You know, 
If you're just going to go with how your world thinks. We can't do that. The world is just wrong too much. It's just wrong too much. We have to see, how does Jesus think? And we have to beg the Lord, you know, to help us to see it how you see it. Help us see it all how you see it. Because when he, when he returns, now I, I want to understand, I'm gonna make a, I, I got to make a, a difference here. I mean, the, the main thing is, you know, if you believe in him, and you, you know, he's changed you. I mean, yeah, you can, you're, gonna have, you're all going to have some things wrong in us, right? We're all going to have some things wrong. But, you know, what he did on the cross is, is sufficient to make up for all of our failures. That's, you know, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we're thankful that he paid the price for all of our errors, for all of our sins. For all, you know, he, he, he has done that for us. Okay? But the scripture also tells us that for followers of Jesus, you know, there's a judgment seat where there's the reward of the loss of the reward. And I don't want to lose reward for being on the wrong side of Jesus in his ethics and his morality. I don't want to lose reward because I see things how the world sees it and not how Jesus sees it. Don't want that. Because those rewards, as we see in the book of Revelation, I mean, we get this idea that those rewards that we receive, the reason we want those is because we love Jesus and we're thankful and we want to lay those back at his feet and say, you know, I live my life for you. That's what we want. That's, what, that's the, the goal of it. Not, not for a trophy case. But, you know, we want our lives from the point you come to know Jesus to the last breath you take to be lived as a thank you to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because I was on that path of destruction. But you saved me from it. That cross, that body, that blood for me. You saved me from it. And so that's, again, what we need this morning is to go back to the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, help me to love you. And I pray for this, for myself this morning and for all of us. Help me to consistently love you. You know, help me to consistently love you. I mean, that's, when we're in that, and, and you know, when we're in that, in that place, when we're consistently loving Jesus, I mean, that's the sweet spot. That's the spot, of, that's the place of joy. That's the place of purpose. I mean, that's the, that's the place of good. Is that, that sweet spot is when we're consistently loving Jesus. So may God help us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you um, to work among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you Lord, that you didn't leave us without the ability to understand right and wrong, without the ability to understand you and your ways, but 
you've revealed yourself to us and you've given us your son and your son Jesus went all the way to the cross for us in that great love. So help us, Father. To love your son, to love you with all that we are. All of our mind, soul, strength. All for you. Help us to remember this morning and to give thanks as we take that bread and that cup. And Lord, we ask, ask that you just remove hypocrisy in me. Remove lack of love in me. And I ask that you do that for all of us this morning. Lord, may our kids, all the kids in this church, may they grow up to know that this is a people that love you. The Lord, that one day they wouldn't run from their faith because their parents or their church was just hypocritical. But they would see and know our love for you and our love for our neighbors and that they would also fall in love with you and love their neighbors, God. And so, Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need you, but we also we need you to give us the courage and the strength and the power to do the hard things and to not take the easy path. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Please, help us this morning, we pray. Amen.